0: To be looking at redemption and relationship. I think a lot of people forget that the redemption we have in Christ, one of the key reasons for it is so that we might have relationship with Christ and with the Father. And that is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So, in chapter 10 of the book of Exodus, the eighth plague all right and remember i said last week that god is judging each one of these judgments these plagues has a correlating god of egypt okay that it's tied to so we have in chapter 10 the eighth plague which is locusts all right and of course pharaoh says no way i'm not letting you go then the ninth plague, darkness, so dark that they can't see their hand in front of their face for a while. And they're freaking out, but still no releasing of the people of Israel. And then in chapter 11, God gives a final threat of an pending judgment. And he says that what he's going to do is kill every firstborn child in the land of Egypt, animal and human. It does not matter if you are the king or you are a prisoner, if you are in the palace or in the prison. It does not matter if you're rich or if you are poor. It does not matter if you are old or you are young everyone is subject to the coming judgment of God. And so God tells the people of Israel, the Hebrews, that what they are to do is to slay a one-year-old lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintel of their home. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, God is about to unleash his judgment. And it says, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house as a lamb for a household and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one can eat, you shall, make, uh, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then going on down to verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. He is judging the gods of Egypt as well. I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you." So, the judgment of God is coming upon Egypt. There is a way of escape from that judgment, and it is to apply the blood of the lamb on your home. This, of course, is a picture of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Egypt is a picture of the world. And our bondage to the world and our slavery to sin and in like manner we live in a world where God has declared that his judgment is going to come upon this world and upon the people of this world for sin and every human being will face the judgment of God it may be after the rapture and Christ comes and I'll stand before him there, it may be a person will die today and they will stand before the Lord. God will judge. Actually, the Bible tells us it is Jesus himself who will judge humanity. Jesus is the judge. So here's the thing. Since judgment is pending for the world, and for all humanity, there is one way to be redeemed, one way to escape the judgment, and that is through the blood of the Lamb applied to our lives. The only thing that they had to do was by faith obey what the Lord said and apply the blood and eat the sacrifice. In the same way, the only thing we need to do to escape the judgment and wrath of Almighty God for our sin is to, by faith, apply the blood of Christ to our life and eat the sacrifice. Jesus said, my blood is true drink, my body is true food. He is our sacrifice. And our relationship with the Lord is not just external, the blood on the house. It is the presence of Christ in us. That's what communion symbolizes. The taking of Christ in. This is my body. Take and eat of it. We need to bring Jesus into our lives, not just have him on the peripherals, okay? And when the time comes... When we stand before the Lord, what will be looked at as what is placed for the judgment or for for redemption on our lives will not be another God. Okay, there are no other gods. God is judging the gods of the world, the gods of Egypt here. We cannot put on the doorposts of our lives a note Listing all of our good deeds and saying, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. That is not what the Lord requires. We cannot tack to the doorpost of our lives our baptism certificate. I was baptized, won't cut it. How about my church membership, Lord? I've posted this on my life. See this? I belong to the church. It doesn't cut it unless by faith we obey the Lord and we take the precious blood of Christ and apply it to our lives by faith and take in Jesus to our life that is how we are redeemed that's how we're saved he paid the price all we have to do is receive the Lord And it is so critical that Christ is in our lives. There are so many people who believe that they will stand before God and be in good standing before him because of their good works, the God they worship, the church they go to, a baptism certificate, or any other number of things. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is how the relationship begins. Because did you notice in chapter 1 that God says to Moses, this is the first day of a new month for you. This is when your new life begins. Ten days out, you will take a lamb, and bring it into your home. You're going to have a personal relationship with this little lamb for seven days, or four days. And then you are going to sacrifice that lamb that you have had in your midst, in your home, as a sacrifice that my judgment can pass over you. And here's the thing, when we take Jesus into our life, when we receive Christ, that is the beginning of a new life. That's when the new day dawns. That is when we are set free from captivity and the bondage of sin and the control of Satan and the destiny of destruction. As the Lord Jesus Christ is our lamb and who has removed our transgressions far from us and who has delivered us from judgment and the wrath of God because he bore it upon himself on the cross. God is about redemption. God is about relationship. God wants more for you and I in our lives than we really comprehend. And that is what is going to unfold now because it's not going to be, okay, you all had the sacrifice, you had the Passover lamb. All right, boom, we get you out. Have a great one. We'll touch base with you later. No, that's just the beginning. We've got a journey to take. We have a new place to live. We have a land flowing with milk and honey where God is going to move and cause his people to grow and to take possession and to flourish and to be a light for him in the world. A people through whom he can work and glorify himself. God has a plan. God has a purpose. It's not just getting saved. And you've heard me say it before, it's like getting married. When you do your vows and you commit your life to one another, that is not the end. That's the get-go, that's the beginning. That's when you really get to delve into the adventure of life and have it flourish into a wonderful blessing and legacy. It begins with redemption. And as we go further, we'll see redemption as at the very base of the relationship. So we have that in chapter 12. And God brings them out. Pharaoh says, you can go. The ones who applied the blood on their homes, the judgment of God passed over them. And death came to every household In the land of Egypt, the judgment of God touched everybody who did not have the blood of the Lamb. And so he brings them out. But God does something very interesting, and we're going to see this unfold. Once they're out, he takes them into a time of testing. Okay? Why? We'll see in just a minute. But the first one is found in chapter 14. And it is the ever famous parting of the Red Sea. Okay. Now what happens here is that God is telling Moses, okay, here's the game plan, Moses. Ready? I want you to take the people And I want you to bring them into this particular valley and they're going to be boxed in. They're going to have the Red Sea and two mountains on either side and they will have no way out except the way they came in. And you're going to go in and I am going to show my power and my glory one final time so that the people Of Egypt will know that I am the Lord they will know that I am God and there is no one like me or besides me and so Moses says okay Lord and he gets this throng of people about a million probably or more and into the valley they go and they get in there and just as God said Pharaoh gets wind of, hey, they've gone into this valley. They're boxed in. They have no place to go. And Pharaoh goes, man, they have no idea what they've done. And you know what? They really don't have any idea what they've done. But God does. And that's what matters. Okay? So they go in. And Pharaoh says, get the chariots. Get the army. We're going after them. We're going to take them out. We're going to take them down. And so in they go. And Israel, being the wonderful, mature, godly, holy, perfect people they are, spaz out, okay? They freak out. And this is what Moses says. And I want you to understand this. When Moses is speaking, he has no clue what God is going to do. He did not get that in the memo. All he knows is God told him to bring the people here, God was going to move in a miraculous way. He was going to deal with Egypt and it was going to be okay. The specifics were not disclosed. Okay? So it's not like he's got something going, well, I know what's going to happen. He had no clue. He just knows he's with a million plus freaking out people and the Egyptian army is pressing down on him. So, what we are told is. That the Lord was leading them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And we're going to watch what happens there. But in verse, uh, verse 11, they said to Moses, the people, it is because... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in this wilderness? Now, God has unleashed plagues upon Egypt. God has just passed over them and allowed them to live while he's judged Egypt. And they're going, you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this is what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone alone. That we may serve the Egyptians. That's the thing. God wants them to serve him, not the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. When people are freaking out, what happens when you tell them don't be afraid? It doesn't help. So he says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He doesn't know what they're gonna do, what God's gonna do. But he says, Look, don't be afraid, stand your ground, watch what God's gonna do, and shut up, okay? Basically, be quiet, stop spazzing and watch how God is going to move on your behalf, just as he did just a little bit ago as he took you out of the land of Egypt, okay? And then it says, in verse 19, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. The angel of the Lord is none other than the manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We'll see this time and time again. We'll see it in just a minute. So here they are. They are freaking out. And this It's not Moses that's just led them here. The cloud has led them. They follow the cloud. And the cloud moves. And the angel of the Lord moves behind and interposes himself between Egypt and Israel. And the cloud moves around and envelops the Egyptians in a dark cloud, a fog, and they can't see what's going on. And then when all this has happened, you know what happens. The Lord parts the Red Sea and the people of God walk through on dry land. And then once they're on the other side, the cloud lifts and Pharaoh and the Egyptian army see what has happened. And their hearts are so hard, it's let's go after them. Now, I would like to think I have enough sense that if I saw that, I would go, we're done. Going home. Okay, it's all good. But no, the heart was so hard that they pursued. And God buried the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. The very ones who sought their destruction were destroyed themselves. So in all of this, the people are looking at the situation going, we are going to be destroyed. No, you're not. God is going to destroy the very thing that seeks your destruction. We have no hope. Oh, yes, you have hope. There is no way. He will make a way where there is no way. And so God moves and they go from panic into praise as Miriam begins to lead them in an impromptu worship service on the banks of the Red Sea, the other side horse and rider are cast into the sea now a few days later chapter 15 they're at the waters of Mara they're thirsty there's a lot of people guess what the water's poisoned it's bitter they can't drink it so rather than going you know what God's taken us a long way all right what are you going to do God they start complaining and freaking out and grumbling and God tells Moses, take this branch, throw it in there. It'll take care of it. And they had clean water. So they didn't do so good, test number one. They didn't do so good, at test number two. Now, God put them at the Red Sea, and he did something huge. You think you can handle water purification? You know, just a big, what are those things called, Britas? You know, it's like a, a Holy Spirit Brita, you know, purifying this thing. You think he can handle that? If he can handle parting a sea and destroying an army, you think he might be able to purify water? Probably. Big test, little test. Didn't do good in either of them. And then in chapter 16, a few weeks pass now. God is faithful. But there's not much food left. What are they going to do? Oh, Lord, you took care of the water. You took care of Egypt. You let us go through the the Red Sea on dry land. What do you got for dinner? No. You brought us out here to die. We wish we had the food of Egypt. At least we had a good hot meal there. This stinks. We're going to die out here. It's like, Okay, and I can't, I can't judge them because, you know what, there are so many times in my life where God has done something so fantastic. And then in the little tests, I still forget. And I still panic. And I still worry. And I still stress out. And I still freak out. I'm no different. And thank God he is patient. So what does God do? Alright, tonight you're going to be having quail and tomorrow morning you're going to have manna. Now we lived in Israel and when you live in a country and you don't have a handle on the language, shopping at the grocery store can be a challenge, especially if you're in an area where you're with the locals. And so Jennifer would go to the grocery store, which is across the street from our house, or the kids would go. And you, she would buy things going, this looks like what I think it is. Or she would sometimes ask somebody, hey, is this what I think it is? But sometimes she didn't know. And she cooked by faith. We actually have this recipe. She has this recipe. We call it faith cake because it was made by faith. And it really is good but sometimes we ate manna because she would put something together and we're like, what is it? And that's what manna means. What is it? Okay, really, manna means what is it? And so we ate manna all the time when we lived there, okay? Because we're like, and you know what, it was, it was always good, you know, especially the faith cake. That was, that's good stuff. So, you know, God is providing for them man, it was like eating graham crackers all the time, okay? Honey, and it looked like coriander, you know, and you ground it, and God provided every day. So he says, okay, now, you just got to do what I tell you to do. Get, uh, get an omer of it, okay? Get just a, what you need for the day. I'll provide more tomorrow, okay? And on, on the, the sixth day, get enough for two days because I'm not providing anything on the seventh day just obey me I've got you covered did they do that no people were like I don't know if I can trust God to provide tomorrow I'm going to hold some of my my manna for tomorrow and it rotted that night didn't carry over some people were like well I got stuff for the Sabbath but I'm going to go out on the seventh day anyway and get some more hey how come there isn't anything out here because God told you you're going to rest and chill. And you'll see as we go through the law, God is really big on vacations. He's really big on rest. It's always you're going to have a Sabbath here. You're going to have a Sabbath here. You're going to have a Sabbath here. How would you like an entire year off? Every 6 year you're going to have 1 year off and I'm going to provide crops for 3. Have a nice sabbatical. Isn't that awesome? God loves to bless his people but we feel like we've got to control things and we don't trust him to provide. They didn't listen and they go out and God says, you know, no, I, I told you there's no food on the seventh day. We're open Monday through Saturday, you know, actually Sunday through Friday and, you know, we're closed on Sunday or Saturdays. Okay, that's just the way it works. I'll take care of you. They were learning. And then the Amalekites in chapter 17 or actually water from the rock. A few weeks later, they have no water, freaking out and panicking again. God tells Moses, strike the rock and water will flow. Moses did. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, this is a picture of Christ who followed them in the wilderness, providing the living water for his people. And then the Amalekites decide to attack. So we've got the Red Sea we've got manna, we've got bitter water at Marah, we've got no water, and then we've got the attacking of the Amalekites. And they didn't do really well in these tests, but God is faithful. Why does he do this? Well, if we go over to chapter 19, verse 4, okay, God tells us why he's doing this. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let that sink in. God says, I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings to draw you to myself. I want you with me. I want us to have a relationship. Now, this is at the front end of the journey. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11 God talks again about how a mother eagle will stir up the nest and how she flutters over it. And that how God carries his people on his wings and he is there for them. In the book of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31, it says, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary, and they will walk and not faint. God's desire for us as his people is to soar with him to live above this world, to live above this life, to see what nobody else can see, to experience what no other people can experience, and to fly with God. He has so many great things for us. He loves us. That's why he sent Jesus, the Passover lamb. And when he stirs us up, okay, and, and I'll, I'll clarify this. You know, I, I grew up hearing of Deuteronomy 13. Now, God is saying, I mean, Deuteronomy 32, 11. Uh, God is not saying that eagles catch their young on their wings. Now, I grew up in church hearing that over and over again about that passage. Eagles don't do that, okay? And I checked to make really, really sure, okay? Eaglets don't start flying until they're almost as big as their parents. Okay, you are not catching. I mean, I was thinking about that. Do I really want to carry my kids? They're adults now. They're as big as me. No, I do not. You know, they're big. And an eagle is not going to carry some other bird as big as them on their back. Okay, the way this is in the Hebrew Uh, The New American Standard brings this out. It's referring to God bearing us on his wings. He does stir up the nest. He does stir us up. He puts us in tough places like a Red Sea, like the Amalekites, like no water, like no food, so that we will turn to him and understand that he is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, that we will understand that he loves us and he's there with us and he cares about us and that we can go to him always for anything. He wants us to draw close to him and sometimes the only times we will draw near to him is in times of need and suffering, in times of testing. But in it, he will carry us. You know, this is what he's talking about here. I have brought you out. When I was talking about this, Jennifer told me about an eagle over at Oshner Park who is wounded. It's missing part of its wing. And I asked her yesterday, and it was just on my mind all week, and and I couldn't go because it's dark by the time I get home from work. And I asked her yesterday, can we go to the park? I want to see the eagle. And we see him or her, I don't know which. But there the eagle is, beautiful, designed to soar, designed with power. They can fly as fast as 70 miles an hour flat out. I'm not talking about dives. They can see like few animals can see. And here's this eagle, sitting on a log, cannot fly. A few yards away is a deer. Deer's not worried about it. Even a goose has landed a few yards away from the eagle. And there's no canopy. There's no covering over the top. Because that eagle cannot do what it's designed to do. That eagle can't fly. And it just, even before I saw it, it just was killing me that you see this majestic, beautiful, Bird, broken and unable to do and be all that it was designed to be. David calls the people of God the majestic ones in the Psalms. And yet, so many Christians are like that eagle that either because of their own sin or because of the sin of others, they are broken. They are wounded and they cannot fly. They cannot ascend into the heights that God has for them. They cannot be who God has desired and designed them to be because they are encumbered by sin and the things of this world. That is why Paul said, lay aside every sin and the weight that so easily besets us, pressing on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We ground ourselves because of sin, complacency, laziness, apathy, and carnality. And we get grounded because we get wounded by other people. People within the church, and we give up and say, I don't want to fly anymore because somebody might try to take me out, take me down. Even if we were grounded... The Lord God Almighty loves you, and he wants you to soar. He wants you to fly again. And the winds of trials are the very things that will allow us to set our wings and fly. You think of Samson. Samson, because of his sin and pride and the garbage that he did, never fully fulfilled what he could have been as a judge and minister of God to the people of Israel. And his wings got clipped, his head was shaved bald, and he was walking in the prison, grinding grain like an ox. But then there's that verse where it says, but the hair of his head began to grow. The long hair was the symbol of the Nazarite vow and the covenant with God and the presence of God. Guess what? The presence was coming back. And when Samson is taken into the temple of Dagon and he cries out and he says, Lord, one last time, let me feel your power. Let me feel do that which I was designed to do. And he went out in a blaze of glory, taking out more of the enemies of God in his death than he ever did in his life. And his name is written in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. Peter denied Jesus three times. He crashed and burned, but redemption came at the resurrection. And Jesus says, go and tell my disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. And he restored Peter, that broken man, to where he became a pillar of the church. You may be broken. You may be grounded. You may have crashed and burned. But we have the God of redemption and restoration, the God of healing, the God of mercy, the God of grace. As Anne Graham Lott says, he is the God of the second chance, the fat chance, the no chance. And that is our God. He wants you to soar. There are conditions, though. God says, you need to obey my voice. Keep my covenant. You are my treasured possession. This is reiterated by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. If you are a saint of God, if you have embraced Jesus as your savior and applied his blood to your life and believed on his name, you are his precious possession, bought not with gold or silver or things that perish, but with the precious blood of Christ. Do you know how valuable you are to God? Oh, man, enough to die for. He has more for you than you can imagine. There is a new life, a new land, a new hope, a kingdom of priests, direct access to God, and a holy set-apart nation. That's what we as believers are supposed to be. And he says, or the people said in, uh, in verse uh, 8, all that God has said we will do. Okay, very good. So God gives in chapter 20 the Ten Commandments. This is then what you need to keep. And he says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of the house of or out of the house of slavery. He said that earlier about uh, taking them out on eagle's wings and calling them to himself. He's saying it now. I think it's good for us to remember how God delivered us. From the land of slavery. We forget the bondage. We forget when we were lost. We forget when we were apart from God's grace and mercy and in rebellion against the Lord. And we need to remember from what He delivered us so that we can walk in appreciation and gratitude and faithfulness to Him. And He says, you shall have no other gods before me. No carved image. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness, not covet. And the people were, we got it. Okay. The Pharisees were notorious for thinking that they could follow this outwardly. This was just outward uh, actions. God was talking about the inward. That's what Jesus brought up. You think of the rich young ruler, right? Where, you know, he comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to be saved? And he lists, I honor, you know, I've done all the things on this level. Honor my mom and dad. I haven't stole, I haven't come, you know, I'm good. And so Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. And he went away sad because he was very rich. He did good with people, at least externally. The problem was in the vertical. He had another God before God. And it was his wealth. A lot of people say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good enough to be right with God. Don't have any other gods before him. If anything has priority in our life and has our affections more than God, that's our God. People say, well, I don't, I don't swear. I don't take the name of the Lord in vain. You know what, that's great, but that's not really what that's talking about. There are a lot of people over history who have done things in the name of God and taught things in the name of God and said things in the name of God when God was not doing them, God was not saying them. And they were misrepresenting God to the people. There are so many people who look at what happened in the Crusades because they were done in the name of God and people don't want to have anything to do with God. That wasn't God's doing. That was man. God says in Isaiah, you know, tell these prophets, so-called, to stop saying the burden of the Lord is upon me. It's not upon them. I'm not talking to them. That's what it means to take his name in vain. You shall not murder. Jesus says you hate your brother. You're guilty. Don't commit adultery. Jesus says you look upon a woman to lust after her. You're guilty of adultery. We crash and burn real quick with the law. And that is why we have the sacrifice for our sins. That is why we have Jesus. Because we can't. In Galatians, Paul tells us that the law, it cannot save us. All the law can do is point us to Jesus. It's our tutor, our schoolmaster saying, you need a savior, you need a savior. I got it. I need a savior. Who's that savior? His name is Jesus. Awesome. Because I can't keep God's law. I know. That's why I came. Jesus says, that's why I gave my life for you. But if we are going to follow the Lord, have a relationship with the Lord, be and do and possess that which God has for us and enter into the fullness of this relationship, we have to obey him. We have to listen to him. In chapter 23, verse 20, God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is. Is in him but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries listen to my angel this is a picture of Christ Jesus said if you love me keep my commandments by following the Lord we enter into the promises and the goodness of the Lord. Okay? We have to walk with him. John says we need to walk in the light as he is in the light. We need to be in step with him. And then I want us to go, and we're going to wrap up here at the tabernacle. Okay? In chapter 25, this is a symbol of fellowship and relationship God gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle. This is a model, an image of heavenly realities. Okay, so in chapter 25, verse 10, there's the Ark of the Covenant. That is a symbol, a picture of the throne of God and the mercy seat of God. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus, the great high priest, who is also the Lamb of God, himself went into the Holy of Holies in heaven and sprinkled his own blood upon the mercy seat because the law was kept in the ark. And the mercy seat and the blood are between the law of God and us. Because of the blood of Christ, our sin is atoned for and therefore, we can have fellowship with God. There is also the table of showbread or literally the bread of faces. 12 loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel were placed before the Lord every day. As an example of their presence before him, and only the priests could eat it. It was communion. It was relationship. God's people were before him symbolically in the table of faces. And God was before them. And the priests broke bread with God in communion. The golden lampstand. That is a picture of Jesus, the light of the world, John, 18, 12, or John 8, 12. Then you have the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's tent. It was the place where God said, here is where I will meet my people and I will dwell among them. So with the tabernacle, it's made up of certain colors of fabric, certain types of metal and materials. And as we look at this, I want to lay this out to you so you have a picture Blue is the picture of heaven. Scarlet of blood. Purple, royalty. White, righteousness. Then you have gold, deity. Wood, humanity. Silver, redemption. You remember that when God uh, took the firstborn of, of all of Egypt, he said of the firstborn males of Israel, you redeem them with silver. Jesus was betrayed for a price of silver, 30 pieces. It's the price of redemption, the medal of redemption. And then bronze is the metal of judgment. Okay. So keep these things in mind as we look at this. So there's the tabernacle. This is the tent. And when you look at this, the, you have the outer court that separated the, tent, the tabernacle, God's tent, from the outside. The bases that held up the wall made out of linen, righteousness, was on bronze, judgment. And the righteousness was held in place by silver, redemption. Redemption. The tabernacle itself, where people met with God, the supports that held up the walls were of silver, about 250 pounds per section of wall of silver held it up. Redemption holds up the relationship that we have with God, the redemption of Christ on the cross. And so then you have the bronze altar, And that is a symbol of judgment. And judgment, as we saw in the land of Egypt, passes over when there is a sacrifice before the Lord. They were to sacrifice the lamb at morning and in evening. Every day. Plus all of the other sacrifices. The oil for the lamp in verse 27, verse 20. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 28 speaks of the priest's garments, the consecration of the priests. When you go on into chapter 30, you have the altar of incense. We find that in Revelation chapter 5. And the incense that are burned upon it are the prayers of the saints. Going on, we have the bronze basin where the priests had to wash. Bronze, judgment, you have to be cleansed. You have to wash. And then the anointing oil and the incense. Again, the oil, the Holy Spirit, and the incense, the prayers. It's a picture of relationship with God. I want you to understand this. When the people camped, the tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp. And all the tents faced all the way around the tabernacle. God laid it out very clearly. This is where this tribe's tents go, and they all face the center. They face the tabernacle. God is supposed to be at the center of our lives. And when the people came out of their tents in the morning, the cloud of God was there as a covering over them. They stepped out into a new day with God's presence right there. And when they went to bed at night, and they're out in the wilderness in a the land they'd never been in, they have the biggest night light the world has ever seen with the pillar of fire. You could go to bed with that glow of the presence of God right there with you. But see, it's even better than that. And Dan alluded to this uh, this morning. God was with his people, right there with them. If you're not sure, just crack that tent flap. Yeah, there he is. You want to? Just go to his tent. Hi, Lord. And he couldn't go right on in. You had to talk to Aaron, you know, or Moses. But he was right there. But see, in John, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt, literally in Greek, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. God himself became flesh to be right in the midst of the people, to where you could touch God, you could listen to God, you could hold God, and he could hold you. You could laugh with him, you could eat with him, you could watch him, you could learn from him. And then when he was crucified and he rose from the dead, you know what? For forty days he kept popping up, and even though you couldn't see him, he was there. Jennifer and I were talking about it. And she brought Nathaniel, and I totally forgot about him. But this is before the death and resurrection, and Andrew brings Nathaniel to to Jesus and and. Uh, uh, Jesus says to him, oh, here's a true Israelite right here, a man in whom there's no guile. And Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? He's like, dude, earlier today when you were sitting under the tree, I saw you. I was right there, man. He's like, my Lord and my God, you know. You were there? Yeah, I was there. Thomas. Was Jesus there when Thomas said, I will not believe? Yeah, he was. You just couldn't see him. And so when he comes back, Jesus comes back, you know, a few days later when Thomas was with everybody else, he says, hi, Tom. Hey, have at it, bud. My hands and my feet, my side. Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Here's the thing. And I want to leave you with this. Right here, right now, in this place, God is here. He is omnipresent. All places, all times. He is right here in this room. Jesus, the Son of God, who is omnipotent, the second person of the Godhead, is right here, right now in this room with us, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, is not only in this room, but he is in you. For you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit corporately Individually and corporately. How close is God to you? Right here. How close is Jesus? Right here. Do not be afraid, for the angel of the Lord is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you and he is in you. And God has a promised land for you. It is not heaven that's being talked about with Canaan. That is a fulfilling, bountiful Christian life on this earth. Heaven will come. In Canaan, there will be battles. There will be struggles. There will be enemies to conquer. And God said to Israel, I'm not going to wipe out all your enemies in one shot, because if I did, you're not big enough to take care of what I'm blessing you with. You're going to get overrun by wild animals and everything you cannot maintain it and so it is with us God gives us ground and his promises little by little so that we can grow into them every eagle has to grow up every eagle learns to fly and you have a father who loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe on him will not face judgment, will not perish, but have eternal life. What is eternal life? Jesus said that they may intimately personally know you, the one true God here and now and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Relationship founded upon the redemption of the blood of the lamb. That is ours.